Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This week, we have a special treat for you. Coming back onto the podcast is Deborah Blum. You might remember Deborah Blum from Chris Mooney's interview back in episode 16, the very beginning of Inquiring Minds, where she talked to him about her earlier book, The Poisoner's Handbook. Well, now she's back with a completely different book. It's called The Poison Squad, but it's not what you think. It's not the squad that does the poisoning. It's the squad, rather, that gets poisoned. It's all about food safety and the history of labeling and food safety in the U.S., and it's fascinating. It definitely overturned a lot of the misconceptions that I had about what it was like to eat in the 19th century. Deborah Blum, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So this book is totally the opposite of what I thought it was going to be. You know, after reading The Poisoner's Handbook, I kind of thought that The Poison Squad is going to be was a bit of a sequel to that. Um, and, you know, it's so different from that, that it kind of shocked me when I because I didn't even read the the press materials that came along with that. I was like, let's jump right in. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I uh, had a moment when I started really getting into the research thinking, what have I done? <laughs> That's right. It's very yeah, different. So, so, I mean, what what caused you to go back and look into the story? Yes, because, you know, I'm not like one of the nation's known food writers, and this is really about food safety. So, you know, I love poisonous things, which makes me sound creepy. And so after Poisoner's Habit came out, I spent a lot of time doing what I think of as toxicology journalism, right? I was really looking at all different aspects of the way that toxic substances and poisonous aspects of chemistry flow through our everyday lives. And that, as as a kind of overall theme, connects both books. I'm really interested in the chemistry of our everyday lives. And I'm really interested in poisonous substances because they're rare, right? It was chemical planet. We're a walking collection of chemicals ourselves, sitting here breathing chemical compounds as we speak. And most of them are not harmful. So they're very, when they are, they're really fascinating to me. Anyway, I'm like doing all kinds of research and writing and 
I was working on a sort of everyday toxicology column for the New York Times, Poison Pan. And, and in the course of just researching, because I'm a nerdy over-researcher, I started seeing references to this very odd experiment called the Poison Squad. And I thought, what in the world is that? And when I drilled a little deeper into it, I thought, it's a very strange experiment. I thought, that is such a strange scientific decision you know, to essentially test no suspected toxins on people, skipping any, you know, animal testing or anything in between, just, you know, right to the point. And so that really led me to this book. Once I started trying to figure out why you would do the experiment and got interested in all the reasons why this particular chemist felt like he had to do that test, which started in 1902. Uh, I I saw the book, right? This sort of landscape of what I wanted to write about. Well, it's so shocking because it goes so contrary to, you know, what so many people think, which is that in the 19th century, people were eating very healthy foods, things that, you know, is farm to table defined that way, right? I mean, now we like, you know, we, we there's like this idea that we're hearkening back to farm to table. But what your book found and, and what your research found is that I, I I certainly don't want to go back to that era because you can't trust what was coming out of the farms. I mean, wasn't that a shock? I mean, again, it was that sort of sort of sh- moment of shock and discovery that made me think I really want to write about it. So when I was trying to figure out why the chemist at the heart of my story, Harvey Washington Wiley, decided to do this famous experiment nicknamed the Poison Squad by newspapers in which he was testing food additives on uh, his co-workers, actually. Um, but when he decided to do that, I'm like, okay, why? And I go back and look at the 19th century, and I have to say, I think I had mostly bought in to something that the sort of pure foodies of today will say, which is, you know, you know, don't eat anything your great-grandmother wouldn't have trusted, right? And so to discover that my great-grandmother was eating really awful stuff, right, in a lot of cases much worse than we're eating today, was was sort of like a big, you know, head-snapping backwards kind of moment. And But it's completely true. Once you get into the second half, in particular the second half of the 19th century, uh, you start seeing this incredible landscape uh, of food fraud, um, uh, of food adulteration, of adding, you know, incredibly poisonous things to food with no requirement to safety test. And of course, it's in this wild west. I don't know why I hadn't connected these dots before. This is pre any kind of regulation, right? There's no food safety, food testing, labeling requirements. So not only can you do anything you want to with food if you're a manufacturer or put anything into it, you don't have to tell anyone, right? So that your average consumer would go and pick up, you know, a can of pro of coffee or you know, a jar of spices or uh, a can of green beans, having no idea what was actually in it. In it. Yeah, and and some of the things that were in it are pretty gross. That's <laughs> like, what I thought you know, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, but probably the example that really you know touched home for me uh, it was was milk, and I will freely admit that I buy into the marketing of this one milk product for my eighteen month old daughter uh, by a company called Strauss, and they sell the these milk. 
uh, whole milk in these like glass bottles. And it just looks so, you know, 18th century. It looks so wholesome. When you open up the milk, there's like cream on top. And I just think I am giving her like the best stuff straight from the cow, but pasteurized. Like, you know, so like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not totally nuts. I'm not giving her raw milk, but I'm giving her Thank like, you. <laughs> possible cow's milk. And yet, like reading your book made me see that cream at the top completely differently. So tell us what people were drinking in milk in those beautiful glass bottles. I'm so glad you brought that up because milk is really my favorite example. And I'm a big believer in glass bottles, by the way. So I say go for that. Um, Interestingly, when you start looking at the glass bottles of the 19th century, you'll find that the manufacturers would do all kinds of way to obscure the contents, even in glass, right? And they would do fine ribs and they would do all these things so you really couldn't see what was in the bottle. But milk is a really, I think, one of the best examples of just how troubled the food supply was in the 19th century. So milk We've got to remember this is before pasteurization, right? So, and milk, milk itself is a wonderful home for pathogenic bacteria. And in the 19th century in particular, there were a lot of pathogenic bacteria, bacteria milk that we've managed to, you control better than they did then. There was bovine tuberculosis. There were really bad bacteria in the milk. And it was all raw milk because we didn't start pasteurizing really effectively in this country till the 1930s. So you had a lot of bacterial contamination of milk and milk products. I mean, you can actually go back uh, in newspapers of the time and, and see stories about ice cream parties in which everyone dies because of the ice, what's in the ice cream, right? Uh, <laughs> like, hello? Um, but so you have that problem to begin with, and you don't have uh, a real refrigeration. You know, people had cold cellars, or they had, you know, they would put blocks of ice, ice boxes. Uh, but there's no electricity until much later in that century, and most people couldn't have afforded it then. So you have a lot of rot of the milk. And I just want to set that up as two of the problems that did exist in milk. The manufacturers made that only, you know, a thousand times worse. And so what 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 did they do? Well, the dairymen, and everyone called them dairymen at the time, the dairymen looked at this beautiful farm fresh milk and they said, man, it's a waste to just sell people milk when if we just water it down a little, we'll make so much more money. So watering down milk was a very standard practice. And even as the milk wasn't entirely bacteria-free, dairymen did not particularly take any trouble when they would water the milk as to what they would use. So a lot of times they just go out, you know, to whatever pond was on their farm and scoop the milk. And the, and the pond water together. I, I think in the book, I talk about this case in Indiana in which a family brought in their glass bottle of milk and it was wriggling because it was so full of horsehair worms from the dairyman's farm, right? So you got, <laughs> that's a great thought, a lot of really lovely, you know, dirty water going into your milk. The milk would turn all kinds of, you know, turn grayish as it thinned or gray blue. So the dairyman would use plaster of Paris or chalk to recolor it, right? Sometimes if they got it so thin that it just didn't even resemble a milk-like product, they'd sprinkle in a little gelatin made from horse hooves to fake the cream, which you referenced, right? That golden creamy layer on the top of the milk. Uh, so they would puree calf brains. 
and float that on the top. And, uh, and speaking of wonderful 19th century descriptions, I had this really disgusting description, actually, uh, of, of a physician and public health worker saying, um, you know, the, the, it looked like cream. And the only way you figured it out was when you poured it into your hot coffee and these calf brains would cook in the coffee, right? So that it was really gross. Uh, and then, a, then we go back to the problem of the rotting milk because milk did rot. And so again, this refers to the rise of the industrial revolution. The second half of the 19th century, you really see the rise of industrial chemistry. And by the end of the 19th century, you know, some of the big chemical companies that we know today, like Monsanto and Dow, are becoming major players in this story. But one of the chemical compounds that really gains prominence in the 19th century is formaldehyde, which was the popular corpse preserver um, during the Civil War. And literally dairymen and also meat manufacturers said, wow, look at a great job formaldehyde does at preserving rotting corpses. I wonder what it would do for my rotting milk. And formaldehyde actually, I say reportedly because I've never swallowed it, but it reportedly has a kind of sweet taste. So it would also sweeten up the taste of souring milk. And so dairymen started using formaldehyde as a milk preservative. Um, and they didn't call it formaldehyde, right? They would call it uh, preservaline or icine or some innocuous sounding name, but they would put it in the milk or the meat and, you know, kind of refreshen it. And then they didn't have to put that on a label because there are no labeling laws. And they didn't have to be careful about how much formaldehyde they used because there was no safety testing. There's no requirements. There's no standards. There's nothing. And so you start seeing in the U.S. Uh, newspaper headlines again, which will be embalmed beef scandals or in this case, embalmed milk scandals. And, and when you see the headline embalmed milk scandal in a 19th century, or just the phrase embalmed milk in a 19th century paper, what it's telling you is children are dying because every single one of those are about events in which children are killed by formaldehyde in the milk. So milk was a very toxic cocktail in the 19th century. I mean, you know, putting it in, into perspective like that, it kind of starts to make sense why when uh, formula was developed, like in the 1950s, it was considered much safer. Like for a long time, I was kind of wondering like why, and, but if, if the choice is between this kind of milk, and I know that obviously breastfeeding is another option, but for, for mothers uh, who could not simply make enough milk or who couldn't do it, you know, I, I'm sure they would want to turn to another substance like, and, and cow's milk would probably be the first one. But then when formula, I mean, formula is much better than milk laced with formaldehyde and calf brains. You betcha. And, you know, that's interesting that you mentioned that because it wasn't only that you see these newspaper stories, but you start seeing cookbook authors, right, acknowledging the danger of milk. And so and Fanny Farmer, who was quite a famous cookbook author of that time period, wrote a cookbook in the early 20th century about the care and uh, feeding of uh, invalids and infants, right? Uh, and she put in there, she did a whole chapter on milk and just said, milk is really dangerous. If you have to use it, this is what you need to know. And this is how you can try to protect yourself about milk. So yes, it would make sense that women who had grown up thinking of milk as something really dangerous would embrace an alternative that didn't 
you know, kind of carry all the baggage, the bad baggage that milk used to have. So now that we've set the stage for why the Poison Squad was was necessary, um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the the that scientific study and you know what the chemist Twiley was doing, you know what methods he was using, and sort of yeah, this the, the uniqueness of this experiment. So tell us about the Poison Squad. It's a crazy experiment. So Harvey Washington Wiley was the chief chemist of the Bureau of Chemistry at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he went there in the 1880s. Um, and at this time, as I've gone on and on about the fact there's no, you know, regulation, there are no consumer protection agencies, right? There's no FDA, there's no EPA, there's no federal agencies that are looking out for toxic exposures, right, for American consumers. And so the only agency in the country that's responsible for food safety is the USDA. And Wiley and this very tiny Bureau of Chemists, he had about a dozen when he started, takes this sort of mission on. He believes it's really important. He believes that if they are the only federal scientists who are going to work in this, then they better do it right. And during the late 19th century, you know, he really does all kinds of surveys of the food supply, looking at you know, the kind of poisonous problems we've been talking about not just formaldehyde, but others, and looking at the widespread food fraud in the United States. And he's, in tandem with that, pushes, 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 right, to get some kind of consumer protection at the federal level, if nothing else labeling. And you see him quite often saying, you know, and okay, maybe you think this is fine for someone who is strong and healthy, but what about children? What about invalids? What about the elderly, right? I mean, we're putting all of these things into the daily diet. We're not doing anything to even check them. And because the uh, U.S. Congress is so heavily in debt to the chemical and food industries and whiskey industries of the time, I mean, just a huge amount of money, they, they just blow all of this off and, and he, laws come up and laws get killed, right? And so in, by about 1902, which was the year he started this study, he was just like, okay, then, right? If nothing I say about, you know, food and what's in it, is going to persuade you, then let's just look at what this does to people. And he proposes a study, it was actually called the Hygienic Table Trials, was the official name of it, to Congress. Um, I, I love the name. It just sounds like everyone's going to be dining at a very clean table, right? Um, and I don't think Congress knew what this was about, but they give him $5,000 to do his little experiment. And so then he, which was a lot more, you know, went a lot farther back in 1902 than it does today. Uh, and so he sets up this really interesting experiment. They build a kitchen in the basement of the agriculture department. They hire a professional chef. They create a dining room with, you know, white cloth covered tables. And they go out to recruit the diners, which will become known nationwide as the Poison Squad. And what they basically said, and they did a national call, although they ended up settling just in D.C. where he was based. Um, they said, here's the deal. If you will come and dine dangerously, uh, we'll give you three free meals a day, seven days a week, prepared by a very high-end chef who has cooked at some of the our nation's capital's greatest hotels, right? Uh, and all the food will be wonderful. It really will be the farm fresh ideal. And the and we'll pay you $5 a month to get all these free meals. And the only thing 
or the only catch is that at every meal, we're going to have you also swallow these little capsules of whatever food additive we're studying for this period of the study. And you have to have, you know, blood tests and urine tests and be weighed and keep the food diaries and you can't, you know, go out and have snacks and go to bars and you're very restricted in your intake and all of these things. Um, and when I look at like all the things that they laid out, I think, why would any, and I think anyone today would go, why would you do that? But at the time, right, people didn't know how dangerous this was. And they saw it as a big adventure. Wiley got letters saying, hire me. I've got a cast iron stomach. I can eat anything. I'm famous in my family for my indestructible digestion. I mean, people really thought the idea was cool. And they had a lot of very underpaid clerks in the D.C. area. And so he selected to start with, uh, you know, a dozen young men. Um, actually, I think it was about two dozen, a dozen in each sort of side of the experiment. And during these studies, half of them would be taking the loaded capsules and half of them would just eat the food and they would compare their health, right? Um, and so he ended up signing up a bunch of 20-something clerks from the Department of Agriculture. Um, and they were young men. Um, they Most of them have been college athletes. Today, you know, we would say, oh, that's a very limited, you know, sample, but he thought of them as just, he wanted to get what they would have called in that time sturdy specimens, people who wouldn't be prone to being knocked down by these chemicals, right? And so he signed them up, and in 1902, they started these hygienic table trials. Um, there was a reporter at the Washington Post, George Rothwell Brown, who saw the study in like a congressional funding bulletin and and I think really found it hilarious and, and staked it out as like this personal story of, you know, these heroes of the gastrointestinal tract and uh, created the name The Poison Squad uh, and off it went. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. One of the criticisms was that, you, yeah, you didn't, also they didn't have a lot of time. So like, what could he and what did he find over the course of just a few weeks in terms of the health outcomes in these two different arms? 
Yeah, you know, when you look at this study now, it's a very primitive study, right? It's a relatively small, relatively restricted sample. You you have to ask yourself if these guys ever snuck out and got a beer and just didn't tell, right? It wasn't like they had them all isolated. Um, you had very fairly short periods of study, right? Um, you know, some people argued that they should have started afresh, right, with each different um uh, application instead of, um, right, you know, continuing to just use the same group for all these different compounds. So, you know, it wasn't a perfect study. It was very early public health, public e- epidemiology, and it's really l- easy to look at it today and say, okay, you know, if I was doing that study today, it would look like it would be a very different animal. But uh, what was interesting about it was he started first with a, a compound called, which we, is called borax, right? Um, it's derived from boron, which is a naturally occurring element. Uh, we see it today in the grocery stores, in the cleaning section, 20 mule team borax, you know, to clean your kitchen. It's exactly the same thing that these guys were eating. Um, and it used to be a very popular food preservative um used across a wide range of things, right? So that people would use it in vegetables, people would use it in meat, people used it in butter. It tended to tighten up proteins so that things, again, you know, were countering rot. Vegetables would crisp up a little. Flaccid, rotting meat would stiffen up a little. I mean, it's a lovely thought, but it enabled manufacturers to sell it more. And Wiley did not think, there was not much information on it that was particularly dangerous, so he started with that one. Um, And what's interesting about these periods, right, in which they're just doing borax, is that in the final section when they were doing the highest dose, so many of their Poison Squad uh, members got sick that they had to call that early, right? Um, And so this really defined one of the key points about this. It's not a perfect study, and it's not the way we do it more than 100 years later. But in this very systematic, now we ratchet up the dose a little, now we ratchet up the dose a little, it became clear that repeated doses at higher and higher level made even young, healthy men in their 20s sick. And they had gastrointestinal distress and nausea and weight loss and vomiting and headaches and tremors and a whole bunch of stuff that Wiley himself had not predicted. And when he testified about this first study to Congress, he said this was a big shock to me. He had always been a guy who said, let's at least label now he's saying, we got to get this out of the food supply, right? So a couple of things happened as they continued forward. Um, among the, They looked at formaldehyde. That study didn't even last the short design period, right? They had to call it in, in the very first low-dose section because people got so sick. They looked at salicylic acid, which is a common preservative, uh, especially in, in wine and beer in the United States. It was already banned in Europe because that's an acid that causes the lining of the stomach to bleed, but was permitted in the U.S. They looked at copper sulfate, which was a greening agent, a heavy metal that was used to turn canned vegetables greener. And in each of these cases, none of these had been safety tested. And in every case, they were able to demonstrate in this period, an escalating period of illness and distress, right? So imperfect experiment, but 
it convinces all the food chemists tracking it that there's some real risk involved in these additives. And probably even more importantly than the perfect science of it, it goes really public at this point. You know, all of Wiley's fights to get the American public to realize what is going on in the food supply start taking off with the, these studies, which really caught the public attention. It's so interesting because I feel like so many of these debates are here today. I mean, I talk, you know, sometimes I, I, I hear people talk about, well, what, you know, what is a good insecticide or good, you know, sort of thing to use to clean your house? And borax is often mentioned because it's a naturally occurring compound. So, of course, it can't be dangerous, which is so Oh, funny. that just makes right? me, you know, aside from this, right, our, our, our equation, you know, equaling natural is safe, just might, makes my chemistry loving head want to explode, right? And, yeah. And then there's like this whole other thing where like, oh, you know, if, if you if you look at canned vegetables, but you open them up and they look green, like they must be just pure, wholesome wonderfulness, not like, you know, <laughs> laced with some chemical that is dangerous to you that makes them look green. Right. It's so you know, after this book came out, I heard from a chemistry. And one of the things I love about Poisoner's Handbook in this book is that a lot of high school chemistry teachers will use them right in the in their classes to kind of get kids excited about chemistry and after this book came out i had i heard from a chemistry teacher in colorado who had done an experiment where he took um uh green giant can peas today which are kind of gray green when you open up the can cuz there's not copper sulfate in them right and he took them out and he put and divided them in half and he put copper sulfate in half of them and they turned this gorgeous spring green. I mean, they're, they're a really bright, strong green, right? So when you compare the two dishes, you go, Ooh, those look so much better. And then he took a nail and stuck it head down. He made a slurry of the copper sulfate improved green peas just stuck a nail in it and left it there. And when he pulled it out after several days, uh, the nail was turning copper because the copper in the peas was, redep- was redepositing on the nails, which was, is exactly what would happen to you, right, when you were awash in copper sulfate. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's another reminder that these kinds of compounds can, can and are used really deceptively, right, you know. A good dye can make you think you're eating something you're definitely not eating. And so this is also brings up this question of, of labeling, which I thought is another uh, hot topic right now, especially when it comes to, say, genetically modified foods. And, you know, there there is the one argument that you want to label everything so that people know what they're consuming. But by the same token, people have such misconceptions about some basic scientific things, like the fact that just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's good for you. And just because it's genetically modified doesn't mean that it is more dangerous. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah. So can you tell us, can you like put this into context today? And like, if there, is there anything we can learn from the reaction to Wiley's work and then the ultimately what it led to in terms of food safety laws that might inform us like going forward now as GM foods are becoming more popular? Yeah. So, you know, it's just from GM for a minute, even though it's not part of my book. Nature itself is the world's greatest genetic modifier. 
Right. And I mean, the fact that species change over the history of the planet, what do people think that is? That's genetic modification, right? We, we evolve, you know, different genes come to the forefront. And if you look at a lot of the foods we've eaten over, you know, even the last couple of centuries, I mean, look at what maize used to look like compared to modern corn. We weren't out doing that in a laboratory, but that's genetic modification. We've been doing it for centuries ourselves. Nature's been doing it for eons. People need to just chill, I think, a little fact about the fact that you can genetically modify and speed the process up, which is what this what it, we're really talking about. We're speeding up the process of genetic modification, right? Um, now, you know, we can do more cross-species transfer and things like that, and, and the subject has been tainted again by companies like Monsanto, right? Monsanto uh, definitely influenced the debates about food safety at the turn of the 20th, and they've considered to today, but I really think people just need to relax and remind themselves that at heart, genetic modification is natural, if you're going to believe natural is safe, right? And then we also should remember, now that I just trashed the natural is safe thing for a minute, and then I want to talk about labeling, um, that the most, most of the most dangerous things on, uh, on planet Earth are natural, right? The most poisonous compounds we know, uh, botulinum A, are natural, you know, uh, the most famous homicidal poisons from cyanide to strychnine to arsenic are natural, right? Um, you know, nature it has an arsenal of defenses developed by plants and animals, and it has a number of naturally occurring elements, uh, mercury, arsenic, as two examples, right? that are really not all that wonderful for us either. And so just as you go out there, remember, right, that nature, you know, put a, a, a not equal sign between nature and safe. They're not the same, right? Um, and, and that's really important to remember. Labels, right? So when you see, uh, just speaking about labels, one of the things that I think is really daunting and frustrating for all of us is that we're told, well, you know, you'll be just fine if you're an informed consumer, right? Just be an informed consumer. The responsibility is all yours, right? And I find that, and I am really one of those label-reading nerds who annoy everyone in the grocery store standing there and going down the list of ingredients, right? Um, I, but I find that, you know, it's individually your responsibility, to be just, you know, dishonest and disingenuous because there is no way for any of us to be fully informed as to what is safe and what is not. And, there, and regarding labels today, we have them, right? They're a lot better than nothing. And they're a lot better than the labels of the early 20th century, too. So, um, and it, not in this administration, but in earlier ones, you know, there was real work in the food safety programs at the U.S. Department of Agriculture to improve the information on the labels that we see on food today, right? And if you look at the history of labeling, they're a lot better than they used to be. They don't tell us everything, though, and it's a mistake to think so. So one of the things that happens back in Wiley's days is as when we finally do get the first consumer laws, the 1906 Meat Inspection Act and the 1906 Food and Federal Food and Drug Act, 
you know, um, you see that there's a lot of immediate behind the scene negotiation between big business and big government uh, to make sure that whatever the way those laws are administrated, you know, is not too hard on big business, right? And and everyone from President Roosevelt to the secretaries of the different departments are complicit in making sure that now that we have the nation's first consumer safety laws, you know, we don't want them to be too pro-consumer at the expense of business. And, and, and some of my book is just about that kind of the politics of that. And, and so one of the consequences is that the label, the, the sort of foundation of how we do consumer protection starts getting laid down in that kind of, uh, situation. And so the labels that we have today, be an informed consumer, stand in the grocery store and read them down to the end, are really not going to tell you everything you want to know because of that ongoing negotiation. So you'll see fruit flavored seltzers, they'll say natural ingredients. What does that mean? Right? I mean, Sounds like like actually mean? Borax. <laughs> right? right? It doesn't actually mean that it has to be natural, even, right? Which most people don't know, right? Uh, it, you know, I was looking at one flavored seltzer here in my office that said essence of lime. I'm like, what in the world is an essence of lime? Right? I have absolutely no idea. But then if you take something, this is not an example of something that's necessarily dangerous, but say cellulose, you look at the label, you see cellulose on the label, right? They put it in shredded, pre-shredded cheese to keep the shreds from sticking together. They use it as a filler sometimes. Super cheap hamburger-like products that have soy and cellulose as well as ground beef in them, right? Um, so what's cellulose? It's wood pulp, right? That's really what it is in food manufacturing. It's just wood pulp. Uh, and so I'm like, can't you just tell me it's wood pulp? Right? Am I eating an oak or I'm eating a pine? I really want to know. What if I'm allergic to pine? Right? I, I mean, and I'm making it ridiculous, but but it's important for us to say no, federal government. You can't just shove this all back on us and and say, well, you just have to be an informed consumer when you're not even willing to give us transparent labels, right? Even on these basic kind of things. And when, no, we actually have laws that say it's your job to be a partner with us in this. And so I'm all for being an informed consumer, right? I try to make smart, as smart decisions as I can. I try to eat as simply as I can, you know, which is some of the advice. Um, but I also get that I'll never be able to sort this all out. And that's why I want my tax dollars to go to the USDA and EPA and FDA so that those armies of scientists and consumer experts and testers can do this for me, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So I just want to remind our listeners that Poison Squad, One Chemist's Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the Turn of the 20th Century by our guest Deborah Blum is now available at booksellers everywhere. And also that you have a, a video version of this book coming out. Tell us about that. Yes. So American Experience, I'm so excited about this, uh, made a documentary film of the book. It's actually also called The Poison Squad. For PBS, uh, it just started this week. Actually, it's, uh, the the premiere was uh, Tuesday, and um, but you can live stream it now off you know the PBS site. 
And they did a fabulous job. And, and I don't say they did a fabulous job just because it's my book, although, of course, that helps. But, um, but they did a fabulous job because they found this incredible footage of old food manufacturing, right? And some of, and, and the old stockyards and images of scientists, actually pe- images that I didn't find when I was doing my book research, and they lined up, a, you know, a wonderful collection of really smart people to talk about food in this film. There's Sarah Lohman, who's a first-class food historian, and Mark Bittman, right, who's a very smart food writer, uh, who's, you know, done a lot of work ab- about safe food and food purity and good food at the New York Times, and Corby Kummer at the Atlantic. There's just some really smart people in this film. Some They had a FDA food historian in this film talking about these issues. And the film, when you get to the end of it, it just has so much insight and power about food safety. I, I found myself at the end of it thinking, I'm just so glad that this is out there. It's, you know, this story uh, about the invention of food safety in the United States, you know, the the scandals and the people that drove that issue, the crusaders like Wiley, who finally got us some kind of regulation, and the ongoing complications, you know, that, that we still play out today is such a powerful, important story. I wish everyone in the world knew it and, and, and could use it to help them make smart decisions about how they eat and how they take care of people, uh, like your child, right? That they care about and want to do well by. So for those of you who are not uh, listening to the to the episode the day it drops, that would have been uh, at the end of January in uh, 2020. And so check it out on your PBS uh, stations or at pbs.org. Deborah Blum, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's always such a pleasure. I love your podcast. Thank you for having me on. There's so many more fascinating stories in Deborah's book that we just didn't have time to get to. It really is an amazing deep dive into the history of food safety, and it overturns a lot of myths. That's my favorite kind of science writing. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>